This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today we talk with two authors, one who's written a history of the largely unremembered anti-war and anti-intervention sentiment that pervaded in the United States in the years leading up to World War II. But first we talk with John Deere, a well-known voice for peace and nonviolence for years. John, welcome back to our program. Thanks, Paul. John Deere is a priest, an activist, the author of over 30 books, including one called The Nonviolent Life, which we talked with him about back in 2013. And in 2006, he talked with us about Mahatma Gandhi and the book that he edited on Gandhi's essential writings. His more recent book is The Beatitudes of Peace, an exploration of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It only takes a minute to read the Sermon on the Mount, so I'll do so right now. Might confuse some people who tune into the middle of it, but maybe we'll enlighten them at the same time. This is from the book of Matthew. When he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of justice, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And whether you regard Christ through the lens of the Christian faith or as a prophet or an historical figure, John Deere makes the case, and is supported by Jimmy Carter in a blurb for the book here, that the Sermon on the Mount is a blueprint for peace. Now, John, to tie it back to our conversation on Gandhi before, you write often in here that Gandhi, not a Christian, really revered the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, and that's what got me to write this book, after years ago working on the Gandhi collection and then traveling to India with Arun Gandhi, Gandhi's grandson, um, I discovered in the process that Gandhi read from the Sermon on the Mount every morning and every evening for 45 years. Mm. It's still astonishing to me. He's not a Christian, although Martin Luther King said famously he was the greatest Christian of modern times, which was a real slap in the face of not violently, of most Christians, saying this Hindu is a much better follower of Jesus. And anyway, Gandhi based his life of nonviolence on chapter 2 of the Bhagavad Gita and chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. Well, that's very powerful. And uh, he kept going back there every morning, every evening to hear these teachings, blessed are the peacemakers, hunger and thirst for justice, offer no violent resistance to one who does evil, love your enemies. And um, he got excited about it, by the way, through Tolstoy, who dedicated the last 25 years of his life from that one sentence from Matthew, offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. You're not allowed to respond mm-hmm. with yeah. violence. And uh, I wanna, I'm going to separate that out and talk more about that later, but continue. Okay. Yeah. So um, I think there's a great teaching there that everyone who considers themselves a Christian should be basing their life, like Gandhi did, on the core teachings of Jesus. And when you read it from Gandhi's perspective, he's saying, 
these are the greatest teachings of nonviolence in the history of the world, the greatest writings of nonviolence ever, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's like a catechism mm -hmm. or a, a handbook on how to be a human being. You, you're peaceful, you're merciful, you're compassionate, you love everybody, you offer no violent resistance, you seek the kingdom of God. And Gandhi kept returning to it to uh, live according to those teachings. I wonder sometimes on bad days if, you know, he was the only person who did that in modern history. And I've been trying to do it, and it's hard. It, the teachings are weird, and they're not discussed in the Catholic Church or any Christian church. We talk about everything but the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, I want to ask about that too. But you do something interesting in here that I think makes it a little more approachable. Uh, before you go into breaking down and deconstructing each Beatitude, you present the anti-Beatitudes, yeah, yeah. which say, uh, in part, blessed are the rich, right. blessed are those who never mourn, blessed are the violent, the oppressors, the dominators, blessed are those who thirst for injustice, and so on. What, what did you find effective about this? Just look at the culture around us. It's a culture of total war, corporate greed, 800 million people starving, 16,000 nuclear weapons, destruction of the earth. And there's very little talk of these values and uh, teachings of Jesus. So I thought about how, in a, I mean, it's a clumsy way to put it, but the culture of violence and war has its own anti-Sermon on the Mount. You know, they have their fundamental teaching, and then mm -hmm. it begins with their own anti-Beatitudes. And I can, I'll say them again, blessed are the rich. That's what cultural church and the religions of this culture teach. If you are rich, God blesses you. That's not the teaching of the New Testament of Jesus. Bl don't ever mourn. Blessed are the, the violent, those who dominate. If you Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Don't be merciful. Who cares about what's going on inside you? Blessed are the impure of heart. But the key one, which you didn't read, is blessed are the war makers. That's a, that, that is... Yeah, you invert peacemakers. Uh, the yeah. fun fundamental teaching of this culture of war and every country in the whole world throughout history. Mm -hmm. All the military chaplains in every empire and every nation have always said, oh, bless, our wars are blessed. They're justified. God blesses us. God on our side, as right. Dylan said. As yeah. Dylan said brilliantly. Mm -hmm. And that is just not the way of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's shocking to put it that way because then when you see what he says and you see how we act, you realize, of course, we're not following Jesus at all. He says, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, the meek. Mm -hmm. Thomas Merton said that biblical word means the nonviolent, blessed are the nonviolent, hunger and thirst for justice, be merciful, pure in heart. But this fundamental teaching, blessed are the peacemakers. So there, Jesus is saying, God is a peacemaker. God is a God of peace. And, well, billions of people have lived throughout history believing in a God of war. God always supports our war, blesses our war, wants us to go to war, and that's a great lie. We've all been lied to. And uh, as I've said through my whole life to audiences and churches around the country and the world, you cannot claim to be a follower of this guy, Jesus, anymore and support war. You can have nothing to do with violence, the military, guns are killing um, if you follow this nonviolent Jesus. If you do support the culture of war, just know you're, you're 
totally going against the nonviolent Jesus. Yeah. Now, you said something interesting that uh, I think is the value of you breaking down each one of these and spending some time on each, which is is that you, you said they're a little difficult to grasp in the modern world. Let's take Blessed are the Poor in Spirit. You know, you suggest that we're each better off taking steps toward what the government would classify as the poverty level, give our access to the poor, work for their issues. And just taking this as an example, our response to the poor, our response to our own uh, wealth, people saying, well, does this mean I shouldn't save for my retirement, my senior health care, leave money to my family? I think that means you can take it as far as you can. Mm-hmm. And in, in other words, yes, it can mean all of that. And that's what Gandhi ended up with no money total poverty. He tried, was always practicing downward mobility. And he was getting it from this sentence and from the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, I think, is saying, get rid of your money. Give it to the poor. I mean, this is such a mysterious sentence. He's talking about the economics of the kingdom of God, Mm. where everybody has uh, food, clothing, health care, shelter, education, and so forth, and dignity. But nobody has... um, more than anybody else. It's a a completely radical vision. How far do we want to practice it? I just encourage everybody to use Gandhi's phrase to experiment with it, Mm -hmm. which is a lovely, helpful way of living the Sermon on the Mount, not judging yourself, but saying, okay, what, what new step can I take? Befriending poor people making serious contributions, uh, looking at your lifestyle and trying to simplify more and more. Um, how are you in solidarity with the poorest people on the planet? That For me, that has meant literally traveling the world and living in refugee camps and working in homeless shelters and soup kitchens. And I, Gosh, I mean, I could tell so many stories of how my life has changed from living in solidarity with very poor and disenfranchised people. Now, you write a little bit about the six antitheses, yeah. which say, in effect, you've heard this commandment, but I say, do you think about this, mm-hmm. which includes corollaries, for example, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, do not even get angry. Do not violently resist one who does evil. I'm, g- I'm going to have you say a little more about this, because I think this is just like the biggest one that is hard for most people living today to get their head around. and. I mean, we see news items like an armed terrorist on a train in Europe is pounded into submission by three American men who for a week are lauded as heroes for the lives that they might have saved on the train. So faced with evil violence, were they just supposed to spread their arms and give themselves to the abuse, even to death, maybe the death of the innocents or their family members? How do we activate this teaching? Great. So it's the core teaching of Jesus. And the actual sentence in the best translation I found is, Offer no violent resistance to one who does evil. You're forbidden to respond to violence with further violence. And you're asking me, and you're saying what most people say, well, then that's just sitting back and do nothing. And that's not what he says. Because then he, gives, he actually gives examples. Um, he's very practical. And we don't like his practical. Um, so the world has always said, someone's going to do violence to you, one-on-one or nationally. And you have two options. You fight back using the means of the opponent, you use violence to end violence. You fight fire with fire and it just becomes a huge conflagration. No, we don't do that. 
Or the world says you run away and do nothing. You're passive. And I think with others that Jesus here is offering a third way. This is what Gandhi discovered and uh, in his correspondence with Tolstoy. It's so incredible. They were really the first modern people to really unpack this. You, someone's coming at you with violence. You do not sit back. You engage them. But you don't use the means of the opponent. That's the difference. It's not passivity. It's active resistance to one who does violence, but it's not using the means of violence. And that means it demands creativity, which we're all trained in violence. We have a lifetime. We know Mm -hmm. how to fight back. That's what we learn in school. That's what we're taught by our families, and the churches aren't teaching us. Well, that's why Martin Luther King in every march required three-hour training in nonviolent resistance. You know, when they're going to do the sit-in, you have to practice with someone yelling at you so that you don't, you learn not to fight back. You learn to love them, but to hold your ground until your acceptance of suffering with love wears down your opponent until he recognizes the truth of your common humanity and he stops his violence. And you're going, well, that's not going to happen. That's what happens. That This stuff works. And I've experienced in my own life, and Gandhi said this can now be applied to nations. That's where we... The mm-hmm. world changed. So, again, I urge people to yeah. experiment with it, to get books on nonviolence and study it. I don't want to be hypothetical about this. You're, people jump to the gun, so to speak, and say, well, you're going to get killed. No. Mm-hmm. Jesus is saying if you do this, something better will happen. My experience when I've been threatened myself from homeless people, someone pounded, beating me up on the chest. I said, hey. Why are you doing this? What's wrong? And the guy stopped. I'll never forget it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, I'm just having such a bad day. Right. And it's often just bringing just that moment. Sen- yeah. yeah, returning someone to sanity. The most famous of these kind of episodes is was on Oprah about five years ago. Remember the guy in the courtroom in Atlanta? He takes a gun and he opens fire and he escaped and he fled into North Georgia and it was live on CNN. And sure enough, he goes into some young woman's house, and she's sitting up reading the Bible late that Friday night. And she's going, okay, if I try to do violence, I'm going to get killed. He's stronger than me. I I can. What am I going to do? I can't be afraid. I have to engage. So she made him a meal and talked to him and convinced him to turn himself in. Mm -hmm. She was on Oprah and said, I was trying to practice the nonviolence of Jesus. My personal experience is it works. I think, as Gandhi said, we should at least try what Jesus taught. War is not working, so let's see if we can apply these methods uh, for a more peaceful world. Let's do like Gandhi and get back with the program and do what this guy said and try to reclaim our humanity in this inhuman time. Gosh, I mean, I could tell so many stories of how my life has changed from living in solidarity with very poor and disenfranchised people for example, in a refugee camp of El Salvador, where to be there, everyone had lost a loved one. And this was in 1985, right in the heart of the war. And yet I experienced, I'm not patronizing the poor, but they had something I didn't have. They had faith and hope and joy and love for one another that is still something very mysterious. I think that's what Jesus came at. Mm-hmm. We don't have that in the United States, yeah. by and large. And we're poor in every which way, and the richest people are so miserable. And, you know, the icons of that are someone like Michael Jackson, Elvis Presley, who yeah, are so sure. miserable. That's yeah. what Jesus is getting at. Yeah. But well, the bigger challenge, I'll end on this, okay. is just 
this beatitude and all of them and the Sermon on the Mount call us to be universal people. And that's getting us out of ourself and our families. And I know many people who are working on this with kids who really are trying to be universal people, people of universal love, universal solidarity with the poor, with the enemies, with people who are being bombed by our country, people of universal peace, universal compassion, and they're raising their children to be like that. Mm -hmm. And I see them to be much happier people, uh, not relying on money. So when you say getting out of your families, you're not talking about necessarily literally, but more about how to bring this into the family. I'm talking about living with a a heart of universal love toward everybody Mm -hmm. and raising your children to be to be that way too and therefore to living a life of nonviolence and compassion and solidarity with all the suffering peoples of the earth and ideally to do that as a family you say mm-hmm. well that's not possible I, I know many people who do that and more and more of us if we're going to follow this guy need to start experimenting with his teachings but again I think Paul they only make sense when you line them all together Solidarity with the poor, grief for those who are being killed around the world, meekness, gentleness, and justice. You know, it's not just charity. For Jesus, he's talking about justice. And then once you're working on justice, you're getting at the roots of injustice, which is war. And so then you're working on disarmament, and you end up like Gandhi with as a, as a person of universal nonviolence. So it's a big journey. But this is the spiritual life. I actually think this is what it means to be a human being. Mm-hmm. More with John Deere, author of The Beatitudes of Peace, in a moment. And later, author Mark Wartman, who reveals more than is ever taught anymore about the anti-war, non-intervention movement in the United States in the years before World War II. All that ahead on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the award-winning series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Twice winner of the uni- twice winner of the University of New Mexico Paul Ray Peace Prize. We're online with all of our episodes going back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. Back now to our conversation with John Deere, priest, activist, Nobel Peace Prize nominee, and author of the 2016 book The Beatitudes of Peace. Deconstructing the New Testament Accounts of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I invite people to go back and read Matthew 5 and sit with it in quiet meditation at some point in the morning. And I don't buy it that you're too busy. You can change even 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll be shown, you know, steps and connections you can make, uh, whether it's people in our neighborhoods to 
um, joining groups, doing global solidarity. And nonviolence begins with the vision that we are one with every human being on the planet. All 7.2 billion people are sisters and brothers. Okay, you go deep into that. We're one with every human being, not just our blood brothers and sisters and children. We're equal with everybody. The deeper you go into that, the more you realize how many of our sisters and brothers are being needlessly killed around the world. A hundred million dead from war in the last century. We're grieving. We, we, we don't even realize it. Well, in this culture, we're not allowed to grieve. You may remember, Paul, I was very involved in September 11th as the coordinator of chaplains for the Red Cross. And New York was changing. It, people were getting nice. They were compassionate. It was shocking. Mm-hmm. And then Bush went on TV and said, don't grieve, shop. Mm. And overnight, the flag went up and people started shopping. And the grief stopped. And then the compassion stopped. I think, Jesus, this spiritual teaching, it's actually a recommendation about the emotional life. You know, he, he later says, don't be afraid, don't cultivate fear, don't get angry, don't cultivate anger, it doesn't help for a life of peace, but practice grief and cultivate joy. These are his teachings for the emotional life of nonviolence. And when you go, when you practice grief on a regular basis, I know many people who do that now over the earth, um, your heart opens. And you feel more compassion toward others. And it's, again, you get out of yourself and you move into universal love. And you often cite Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama as, like, the best examples that you can think of of that. I mean, the grief and the joy. A couple of years ago, I went to South Africa and I was with Archbishop Tutu. And um, it was just incredible. I walked in the room. He had a luncheon for me. It was all incredible. But he grabbed me by the shirt, no hello. And he's a little guy, and he goes, John, you and I have to work for peace and justice till the day we die. That was his opening sentence to me. We're both smart, Alec. He said, oh, come on, Archbishop. How do do I do that? How do you do it? He's 86, and he's sick. And he moved real close to me, and he goes, I cry. And that, uh, that's my experience of meeting all the greatest people in the world that get right to the heart of the matter. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I have cried every day of my life for the way we kill sisters and brothers around the planet. Everything I'm saying to you, he said it to me. And I also laugh. I've laughed every day of my life. He's crying as he's telling me this. Uh, so I practice grief and I practice joy and you and I are going to keep going forward as peacemakers. It was one of the great moments of my life. But Tutu reads the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. so this is he's yeah. practicing this stuff yeah. unlike the rest of us. Well, we're talking to John Deere, who's the author of The Beatitudes of Peace, Meditations on the Beatitudes, Peacemaking in the Spiritual Life. Um, and since our program is about this, let's jump to Blessed Are the Peacemakers. You alluded to it earlier. Now, in your chapter here, you say bluntly, if one calls themselves a Christian and does anything to support war, they aren't really following Christ. Now, the fact that Christians across the board aren't resolutely and actively anti-war really mystifies you. It sounds like I was thinking that, you know, you, you, you wonder how church doesn't let out and everybody doesn't go down to the state house for a rally as opposed to going to brunch every Sunday. Why right. not, right? <laughs> right? Instead, we go back to work on Monday building bombs. Jesus, Gandhi said, was the most nonviolent person who ever lived. 
His last words in the Garden of Gethsemane to the church were, put down the sword. Gandhi said in his execution, Jesus practiced perfect nonviolence, no anger, no retaliation. And all of his teachings, as I've been saying, are all about this life of nonviolence. Well, you know, that's the way the early church was for the first three centuries. You basically were going to be martyred for claiming, hey, we're following this guy. We're not following Caesar, and we can't fight in your armies because our guy won't let won't let us because we have to be nonviolent. So they were all martyred, and then, oh, the emperor became Christian, Constantine, in around the year 315, and then he legalizes Christianity. He makes it the number one religion of the Roman Empire. They all throw out the Sermon on the Mount, join the military, and then he literally, he cited Cicero, the pagan, and said, you know, sometimes war is justified. And then by the Middle Ages, we had just wars and crusades and men burning women at the stakes and slavery. And here in New Mexico, the priest blesses the nuclear bombs at Los Alamos. So we've had 1,700 years of the so-called just war theory, which has nothing to do with the Sermon on the Mount. or It's just nowhere in the four Gospels. It was made up in the year beginnings in the 3rd and 4th century. You spent a good bit of time on this other beatitude that immediately follows, blessed are the peacemakers, to make it clear that if you choose this path, it's not going to be an easy path. I think that's why nobody wants to be a peacemaker. Well, so, yeah, so <laughs> you get in trouble. The next <laughs> one is blessed are the, those persecuted for the sake of justice. So you, you acknowledge that it's a you know long and largely thankless road and essentially can lead to effective martyrdom. That's what Mm -hmm. Jesus said. And my experience is they don't want to give you the Nobel Peace Prize when you speak out publicly against the bombing of children in Iraq or Afghanistan. People, I get death threats from parishioners, Mm. uh, hate mail from bishops, and denounced by all kinds of people. And I go, wow, Jesus was right. But how could it be otherwise? And and, uh, and You must think I must be doing it right. Right. It's part of the job description Mm -hmm. in my uh, mine now. But the catch is, you know, you're supposed to be advocating the abolition of war and poverty and nuclear weapons and so forth, really working for peace with justice. You're going to get a lot of blowback. It's not going to go over well. And now you get to be nonviolent. Like all of these teachings are supposed to right. kick in then. You have to forgive people. You have to keep insisting on the truth. You don't retaliate. You don't have resentment. And you don't get angry. But you keep saying, folks, we can't keep going down the road of corporate greed and war and nuclear weapons and catastrophic climate change until you win everybody over. Now, that's the vision, I think, that Jesus proposed and he was killed and Gandhi tried it and did great work and he was killed and King tried it and did great work and many people, you know, there were 200 activists killed in Honduras just in the last three or four years uh, working for the environment. We don't talk about that at all. Many environmentalists are being killed around the world. And this is very hard for us as Americans to grasp. And uh, that's why Gandhi stayed with it, why I urge others to just sit with these teachings and take a step. And what I write in there somewhere is, um, I think Jesus says it, uh, you will be satisfied. You will find great meaning in your life if you're part of the global struggle for justice and peace. You'll meet the best people. I'm not kidding you. Such interesting people who care for the earth and the poor and justice and peace. You can meet great people, famous and not famous, in this struggle. And you learn, you know, great things about life, the, you know, the, the simple things of 
enjoying creation and children and friends and a good meal, instead of getting caught up in what the culture is telling us to get caught up in, where we will never find joy or happiness. That's John Deere, spelled D-E-A-R, by the way. He's the activist, priest, and author of many books, including The Beatitudes of Peace. Again, our full interview with John Deere is available at our website, peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and now a look at a book that focuses on the years leading up to the United States' entrance into World War II, December 7, 1941, after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. The book is called 1941, Fighting the Shadow War, a Divided America and a World at War. And its author is Mark Wartman, who, full disclosure here, was a colleague of mine over 40 years ago on the staff of Walt Whitman High School's newspaper, The Black and White. We hadn't connected since graduation in 1974, but it was great to reach him near his home in Connecticut recently to talk about the little-remembered and large anti-war and anti-interventionist sentiment that prevailed in the U.S. all the way up to the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. And he writes about it in his book. Quite simply, when polls were taken in the spring of 1941, with the strong possibility that Great Britain could still fall to Hitler, with Hitler in control of the entire continent of Europe, on the verge of invading the Soviet Union, 80% plus said even at the risk of the fall of Great Britain, the U.S. should not get involved as a fighting force in the war. Americans were massively opposed to intervening in the war. And then you get into the depth. And the depth is quite remarkable because we think, oh, you know, there were fascists in America who were opposed to entry into the war. There were communists who until right up until June 22nd, 1941, when the uh, Germans invaded the Soviet Union, were deeply opposed to intervention in the imperialist war, as it was being called. Uh, but the reality is that former President Herbert Hoover, um, a mainline Republican, uh, was strongly isolationist. Norman Thomas, perennial socialist candidate for president, was deeply opposed. In my book, I have figures like Theodore Roosevelt Jr., the son of Teddy Roosevelt, President Teddy Roosevelt, the Rough Rider, who had been so adamant about the U.S. getting into uh, World War I and sent f his four sons there, uh, including Ted Roosevelt Jr., who uh, was badly wounded in the war. He was a leading isolationist during the period. Eventually, he came back and, and rejoined the army and was famously um, leading the invasion at uh, Utah Beach on D-Day. So there was people really across the political spectrum. And it wasn't simply people who had uh, radical sentiments on the left or right or who had uh, any kind of ethnic uh, hatred that was driving them. You know, th there was a very deep anti-war sentiment on American college campuses. You know, in many ways, as forceful as took place during the Vietnam era, young people were basically saying, I don't want to go fight a war among the great powers and fight a war of attrition, which the assumption was it would end up being another war like the First World War, in which essentially an entire generation was slaughtered in the, uh, in the trenches, facing off against each other. And there was a draft established before 
the U.S. actually entered the war. Yes, uh, wasn't there? Indeed. So while there was this tremendous force against entering the war, the White House, uh, President Roosevelt, was convinced that U.S. intervention in the war was going to be necessary. He wasn't ready to commit American troops to the fight, but he was convinced that eventually the U.S. was going to have to uh, play a big part in the war. And he, in the summer of 1940, pushed through Congress uh, over the objections of a large percentage, uh, although not a majority of Congress. He was able to get through uh, the first peacetime draft in American history. I mean, if you think about that, that's an extraordinary fact that the United States in up to that point, it had been 164 years as an independent nation, we had never drafted a soldier in peacetime. So he got that through, and he also was brave enough to one week before the 1940 election, uh, in which he was running for an unprecedented third term, one week before that, he had the first lottery numbers pulled as he was there to to draft 800,000 men. Now, getting that draft army established required him to agree that that army was forbidden to fight foreign wars. So you've created this this first conscript army, but you've said they're not going to go fight outside the Western Hemisphere. Compared to the fighting forces that uh, the Axis powers had in the field, it was nothing. Uh, Germany had 10 million hardened, uh, war-experienced armed forces, men in, uh, in arms, and here the United States was tr- trying to establish uh, its first army that had less than a million men. And I should point out to show you just how deep the opposition was to U.S. intervention in the war, while FDR and Prime Minister Winston Churchill were meeting for the very first time in a summit off the coast of Newfoundland, Canada, beginning to set plans for possible U.S. intervention and for a post-war world. Uh, At that very same moment, Congress, the House of Representatives, was holding a vote on whether to continue the draft, and it passed by one single vote. You know, mm. So this relatively small army would have gradually dissolved if that vote had gone through. In the context of the 20 years after World War I ended, you've got some things happening that get into the mix of anti-interventionist and uh, peace movements. Uh, the League of Nations was formed, but it failed. There was this economic depression, of course, the crash of 29 that must have had some role in trying to suggest that the U.S. getting bogged down in another international war wouldn't help, although I think that that was, turned out to be counterintuitive. Talk a little bit about some of those other factors that kind of get into the mix that explain the poll numbers. Sure. Well, of course, there's, there's the very first uh, issue, which was that Americans understood very well uh, that the Great War had resolved nothing and at a horrific price paid not so much by Americans. Uh, The U.S. entered World War I at a fairly late date, and the armistice ending it in 1918 
came quickly before the United States could really uh, fully engage. But they were very aware of just how horrific the violence had been for, uh, for both for their allies and for uh, uh, the opposition forces. The Americans were also rather bitter that the British had borrowed an enormous amount of money from the United States to wage that war, and that money had not been fully repaid by any means. So there was, uh, there was that aspect. There was the other aspect that many Americans quite simply disliked the king in England. Uh, there were a lot of Irish Americans. Uh, there were also a lot of Americans who just said, why in the world should we be supporting the world's largest colonial empire? Then there was this notion that the conflicts that went on in Europe were sort of eternal balance of power issues. You know, should Germany dominate the continent or should France dominate the continent? Should England have sway over uh, continental affairs or uh, should another power? Ultimately, it was about uh, ri colonial rivalries. Who, who had the biggest colonial empire? So uh, there were all these elements that Americans looked at and, and with quite a jaundice eye. And then you mentioned the, uh, the Great Depression. Inevitably, uh, when you are under deep economic duress, like Americans were uh, throughout, that, uh, throughout the 1930s, uh, you look inward. You look for uh, what it is that you could do uh, to help yourself. And indeed, as, as you mentioned, there was the counterintuitive uh, realization that that war actually could power the economy back up and get Americans out of that depression. But when the war did break out in Europe, Americans were actually the principal beneficiaries because the orders for American industrial goods, American grain... American scrap metal, American oil, American aviation fuel were enormous and put Americans to work. And in that context, they said, finally, wow, the good times are starting to roll. You know, why in the world would we want to spoil that by going off and, and fighting a war? And it's always, uh, to me, it's, it's always one of the great ironies that the airplanes the Japanese sent to attack the United States at Pearl Harbor were flown using American aviation fuel and dropping bombs and torpedoes built with American scrap metal. You know, the U.S. was an active trading partner with Japan, you know, until just uh, a few months before the attack. We'll continue our conversation with Mark Wartman, author of 1941, Fighting the Shadow War, in a moment, when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Available as a downloadable podcast through iTunes or via our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and our guest is author and scholar Mark Wartman, whose 2016 book is 1941, Fighting the Shadow War, a fascinating account of the years leading up to the U.S. entering World War II when public sentiment weighed heavily against joining the fray overseas, despite the seriousness of the threats by Germany and Japan. Now, moving down the timeline a little bit, Mark Wartman, uh, tell us about the Neutrality Acts uh, in Congress of 1935, 36, 37, 39, how they began and how they bent toward allowing ultimately more and more U.S. involvement in the conflict in Europe. But uh, tell me a little bit about those. It did not take a very keen observer to realize that, uh, you know, war was on the horizon. And in that context, the isolationist leadership in Congress pushed through a series of so-called neutrality acts that forbid the United States from arming a nation at war, forbid any contracted material from private manufacturers uh, to be sent to a belligerent power, and then eventually that was amended to say that any weaponry or other material that was sent from the United States had to be paid for in full and in advance before delivery. And then on top of that, the Neutrality Act said that American ships could not be used to deliver the material to uh, any uh, uh, warring nation, and that American naval vessels couldn't be used to protect any ships that carried American-made goods to a warring power. Let me pause you for a second there, Mark, because this word uh, belligerence really didn't distinguish between aggressor and victim in judging, you know, where support went or didn't go. And that created some issue in terms of what the Neutrality Act actually meant. You couldn't choose sides. It was whoever side was involved in it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There was no distinguishing between Hitler and Belgium. There was no distinguishing between Mussolini and Ethiopia. Uh, There was no distinguishing between... Uh, Japanese uh, attacks on Nanking and the Chinese people. You know, it really was, we cannot provide uh, any kind of, of aid to any nation at war. Now, as things went on, the neutrality acts were gradually being amended. But uh, when right. war first broke out, the U.S. was essentially held to a standard that said uh, that the only uh, course for the United States was to remain a neutral. Yeah, and then eventually they allowed for, um, or I guess were somewhat replaced by the Lend-Lease Acts that actually defined what kind of support that uh, the U.S. could offer to Britain specifically, right? Yeah, at the, uh, at the start of 1941, Roosevelt proposed that we become what he called the arsenal of democracy. And what he meant by that uh, and by the idea of Lend-Lease was that we would become a supplier for nations 
that we deemed as fighting in our security interests, in our own defense. Right. I guess it's important, though, to reiterate that this is pre-atomic weapons, pre-transcontinental missiles. There was more of a sense of the hemispheres of the Earth at the time. And didn't America feel pretty safe with the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans on either side and friendly neighbors to the north and south? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, the heartland of isolationism was, in fact, the geographic heartland of America. The, the Midwest was predominantly isolationist because for most people, uh, the issue was geography. We had those big oceans, um, and as you said, we had um, sort of land boundaries to the north and south that, that we could uh, reliably uh, depend upon being safe. Although, actually, as the war was starting to unfold, uh, Americans began to be, or I should say the uh, government in particular, began to be fearful of what was happening in South America, uh, where Germany had cultivated a lot of allies, and the U.S. began to, uh, had not been anywhere near as effective at cultivating allies and began to develop uh, both propaganda and intelligence networks to the south because of worries that, that uh, Hitler did uh, plan eventually to jump across to, uh, to Brazil. But uh, as you say, most Americans uh, agreed with Charles Lindbergh, who became the leading spokesman for the, uh, what was called the Committee for America First, uh, which was the leading isolationist organization at the time. Most Americans agreed with him that if you raise your defenses on your borders high enough, nobody will dare to attack us, that we could very uh, happily live within our own nation, be uh, an arsenal providing uh, weapons to our friendly allies and um, hope that they could stave off the worst of the tyrants and the autocrats. Now, wasn't there a strand of anti-Semitism that crept into this equation of staying out of the conflict, particularly closer to the war itself? You're absolutely right. There was strong anti-Semitism, certainly among certain groups and, and many individuals. I mean, even within FDR's administration, the uh, State Department had very active uh, leadership below the level of, of the Secretary of State, Cordell Hall, uh, who were seeking to prevent uh, Jewish refugees from getting into the country. Uh, there was one assistant secretary of state in charge of refugee affairs, Breckenridge Long, who told his counsel the counselors uh, at American embassies around the world that their job was to delay and delay and delay providing visas for, uh, in particular, for uh, German Jews and, and Central European Jews who were desperate to get in the U.S. I had uh, family members, uh, cousins, who uh, uh, had family in the United States who were on a ship that came and landed in San Francisco. They had family money that they, uh, they would not have been a burden on the United States in any way, and they were forbidden from coming into the country. And they ended up having to go to Mexico and live there through uh, most of the war before they were finally able to get a visa. There was that uh, a component within 
the the federal government outside of it. Um, you know, I spent a, a lot of time uh, researching Charles Lindbergh's activities during the period. Lindbergh's diaries are at Yale University. He kept very carefully kept uh, diaries almost every day of his thoughts and activities. And he published his diaries after the war under the title Wartime Diaries. Um, but they were expurgative of all uh, discussions about Jews. And when you read the diaries in original, uh, you realize that he was deeply obsessed by Jews. He was convinced that Jews were a force pushing what uh, he considered to be true Americans into a war against their will. Uh, he used that kind of classic canard that Jews uh, had some kind of insidious control of the media. In, in fact, there was, uh, at the time, there was very little Jewish uh, power in the media um, other than a significant component in Hollywood. Um, but uh, Lindbergh was very active uh, in the movement and was really uh, FDR's chief uh, rival through this period for the American hearts and minds. And uh, Lindbergh was campaigning, and he would get tens of thousands of people coming out for rallies to hear him speak. Uh, and eventually he did explicitly say uh, during a speech in September of 1941 uh, in Des Moines, Iowa, that it was uh, Jews, along with the British, who were uh, pushing Americans against their will into the war. Uh, but there were also, uh, there was other, you know, far more sort of openly anti-Semitic uh, figures. Uh, Father Charles Coughlin, who was um, uh, a, a priest who had a radio show, a weekly radio show uh, from his parish house in Royal Oak, Michigan, uh, that drew something on the order of 30 to 40 million listeners out of a population of 120 million Americans. And Father Coughlin was openly anti-Semitic and, uh, and openly pro-Germany. In a way, your book ends the way you said it would. <laughs> you know, uh, Japan attacks America, and is it fair to say that as soon as the attack happened uh, on U.S. soil, that the anti-war and the pro-isolationist movement pretty much dissolved? I mean, even Lindbergh was trying to sign up, you know, for service. Yes, that's that's quite true. There was among some diehard uh, America firsters uh, a desire to continue the organization as a watchdog for American liberties in wartime. Uh, there were certainly pacifist elements within the American population who simply were opposed to war of any kind against any enemy. But when war comes, it's uh, like a raging river, and it sweeps everything away with it. And once the U.S. declared war on Japan, uh, Americans almost to a person said, this is our war now, and we have to fight it, and we have to win. You'll find links to the many books of Mark Wartman by going to our website, peacetalksradio.com. We've been talking to him about his 2016 release, 1941, Fighting the Shadow War, A Divided America in a World at War. You can hear our entire interview with him at our website, too, along with other links and resources at peacetalksradio.com.
Before we close this edition, I'd like to go back to our earlier guest, John Deere. I asked him to say a few words about his friend and colleague and legendary peace activist, Daniel Berrigan, who died in 2016. Well, from my perspective, Daniel Berrigan was one of the great prophets of peace of modern times. He ranks right up there with Mahatma Gandhi, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King, Thomas Merton, great people like Thich Nhat Hanh and Archbishop Tutu. He's the first Catholic priest arrested in protest of war. I think ever. <laughs> I've actually researched this, certainly in the United States, certainly in the West. And that was 1968? 1967. It was in October 1967 at the Pentagon. There was a large mobilization against the war. Dan took a group of college kids from Canal, and they were all about community and friendship. And they said, oh, by the way, we're all getting arrested, and are you, aren't you coming? And he said, I have no choice. And that had never happened before. Uh, Every priest, every bishop in the United States, every minister was for war. And uh, in th that history is coming out now. And then with his brother, six months later, Philip, Philip Berrigan, there's two famous priests. They and seven friends went to Catonsville, Maryland, went up to this place where it had the draft files, took 300 draft files, went out to the parking lot, poured homemade napalm on the draft files and burned them. And Which was being used in Vietnam. Yeah, to time. recruit young kids to go off and kill in Vietnam. And um, that was huge global news in every newspaper around the whole world. And why? Not just in creative protest of using napalm on draft files. That was brilliant. And, but priests being against war, where they never had this happen before, because the church has always been for war. And that changed everything. Today, mm. it's kind of normal to have a priest or a minister or nun be against war. We don't mm. think of anything weird there. Or, and there's all kinds of church groups for peace and justice in every city in the United States and around the world. A lot of that is due to the Berrigans, and the historians are proving that. The Vatican would agree with that. Well, they had the trial. They're supposed to turn themselves in. And then in 1970, instead of turning himself in, Dan went underground. It happened actually quite spontaneously. There was an event in Ithaca, Cornell. Dan was going to make an appearance. He had just under, gone underground for a week, and it was a symbolic gesture. 10,000 people came out. They had a rock band and speakers, and he appeared, and everybody cheered, and the FBI was all there. And somebody said to him, hey, you want to split? And the light went on, and Dan thought, that's a good idea. <laughs> and they put him in the disguise, and he got on a motorcycle, and he went out the back, and he was six months before the FBI caught him. I'm dealing with all these movie studios at the moment who've approached me about making uh, a movie about Dan's life because it's mythical, you know, the yeah. things that happen. Well, but he was going deep into what is nonviolence? Yeah. What do we do about this war in Vietnam? And then he went off to prison. And then later, he and his brother in 1980 did another great thing, hammering on nuclear weapons and starting the plowshares movements. What was he like to have a cup of coffee with? It was great. Uh, he was, uh, Martin Sheen says he's the funniest person you ever met. And that was my experience too. And he loved coffee, by the way. And he loved to have a drink in the evening. So he, he just... I mean, I lived with him for seven or eight years, and I saw him every single day. And uh, I would be uh, completely floored every single day because he would say something so profound and so obvious, like something from Buddha, and then we'd just move on. 
Dan taught a lot of simple, basic truths. Uh, you know, stay modest, simple, peaceful, uh, be merciful to yourself, do the good because it's good, and leave the outcome in better hands than yours. Don't cling to results. Just be truthful and speak the truth. He said things like, uh, peacemaking goes nowhere, and yet it must be done. It's the most important thing right. to be done. Uh, he had that beautiful poem, peacemaking is hard, hard almost as war. Mm-hmm. He suffered terribly in the end, and he never complained. And he he felt things were much worse now than when he started. Yeah, I was going to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah, and he I'm... grieved over that, and he and yet he said, you know, he lived the life, and I and he went hoping that it'll bear good fruit, that yeah. others will live like he did. It didn't. Him making that admission didn't change his take on his on his own life, though. No, because and this is spiritual talk. He was a priest and a Christian. And one of the very few people I've known who really believed in resurrection. By that I mean resurrection means having nothing to do with death. And Dan talked about death the very first minute I met him, 19, early 1980s. He said, the problem with the culture now, it's not just war or bombs. It's death as a social methodology. We use death to resolve our problems. And so he was spending, it's very interesting, he was spending his life, he was saying, resisting death and the culture of death. But he, ta- he told me as a kid, but if you're going to do that, John, you've got to learn to live life to the full and to be a person of resurrection, to have nothing to do with death. And that means nothing to do with violence or killing. So resurrection for Dan was about being a person of nonviolence. And it's not a pie in the sky stuff. It's like this life is short. We're headed toward a new world of nonviolence. Uh, let's do our part now, like Jesus and Gandhi, to welcome a new world of nonviolence here and now. So he had that joy that we were, we've been talking about that is very rare among activists. King had it too, and so did Gandhi. And that's why I consider Dan one of the greatest people in U.S. history, actually, one of the great resistors and literary uh, figures for peace and justice. And um, I just urge everyone to, to go back to his writings and to study them and to take up where he left off. I sure hope more and more of us can follow in his wake. Again, our full interview with John Deere is available at our website, peacetalksradio.com. All the episodes in our series dating back to 2002 can be heard there. You can also read partial transcripts, download audio, see pictures and explore other topics and resources all at peacetalksradio.com. You can also make a tax-deductible contribution through our website to help continue this work. Peace Talks Radio is produced by the independent nonprofit organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated. All the details at our website too, peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from listeners like you, we've received support from a Spinal Health and Movement Center and Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves-Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.